Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank coming to you from my house in Bellingham, Washington. We have a fun show in store for you this week. We're talking about taking risks with Timothy Egan. He, of course, is the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who decided a few years ago to put his entire life on hold and walk over a thousand miles through Europe to try to figure out his Catholic faith. Plus, speaking of walking, we're going to talk to Jeanette Ward Horton. She walked away from corporate America to work in the cannabis industry, specifically trying to build wealth for black and brown communities since they have traditionally been the target of the war on drugs. Plus, we are going to hear some music from local Portland favorite, Pure Bathing Culture. I'll tell you a risk you do not want to take. You do not want to risk missing this next hour of Livewire because it's going to be great. So stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. <gasps> it's my cool friend, Luke Cumber. <laughs> You're cool as a lucumber. <laughs> oh, how I've missed you in the intervening six days <laughs> since we hug out. Uh, hi there, Elena. I come with good news this week. Tell me. We have a new station. Very excited <gasps> to be on the air in a place. Now, you already know the answer to this, but I wonder if the LiveWire listeners will be able to figure this out. Okay. We are now on in a city that has a charity that helps find homes for prairie dogs. Oh. Okay, that's hint number one. Okay. It's also uh, the home to the world's first Bitcoin ATM. Mm. And this is the slam dunk. It's also the name of this city is the title of the longest Weird Al song that has ever been released on any of his studio albums. How long are we talking? Very long because I listened to it this week <laughs> when I saw this little dazzling detail. And it is, of course, Albuquerque, New Mexico, where we are very excited to now be on K-A-N-W, Albuquerque. Honestly, if you're going to listen to that Weird Al song, block out a whole afternoon. It is <laughs> truly epic. Hey, speaking of things that are going to be epic, are you ready to do the radio show, Elena? I am so ready. Uh, Molly, are we recording? I think the fine folks of Albuquerque would appreciate a cool lucumber. So yes, <laughs> we are. All right. Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded. 
from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire House Party. This week, writer Timothy Egan, activist Jeanette Ward-Horton, and music from Pure Bathing Culture. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, live and direct from a small room just off his kitchen, the host of Livewire, Lou. Oh, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the show this week. We've got a fun one in store for all of you, as we like to do each week on the program. Uh, we ask the audience a question, and we get those answers sent in through social media. This week, the question was, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Which, you know, takes on a kind of interesting tone these days because there's lots of things that didn't used to seem risky. Right. And now, now feel like a real roll of the dice. What What's the uh, biggest risk you've ever taken, Elena? Okay. Okay. So jump into the Wayback Machine to right. back when we would go to jobs and offices. Mm-hmm. I was in my office at Oregon State University. I went downstairs to check my mailbox, the little, you know, cubby that my mail comes in. And there was a Ziploc bag with Professorello written on okay. it. That's your handle around Oregon State University, yes. right? Yes, and it had a brownie in it, a big, <gasps> huge brownie. I, you know, when you're at work, when you're like not near your refri- your home refrigerator, yeah. there's that time of day where you just will do anything for sweets. Mm-hmm. It's like 2.30 for me. And I just ate it. I just scarfed it up. And the next day I got an email from a colleague who was like, I noticed that you had a brownie in your mailbox. I had one too. What are we going to do about this? (laughs) (laughs) She was like probably thinking that like, you know, someone could have put some contraband in it or, you know, like there was no from someone. (laughs) I just ate the whole gigantic brownie. (laughs) And were you okay? I'm still here. She is too. Uh, there, was, there was no hallucinating. They had not put any kind of uh, stuff in the brownie so as to take you on a, a voyage of discovery. You weren't ready to go on at 2.30. Yeah, but with a brain like mine, you know, you never really know what's a hallucination and what is it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if this is the biggest risk I've ever taken, but it's the most recent. Mm-hmm. So I spent a good part of last week uh, sailing around the San Juan Islands up in Washington State where I live with my buddy Ooh. Evan. He has got this great sailboat. Uh, you know what the name for that is? Technically, it's called gunk holing, which what? sounds very, very dicey, but that just means kind of sail from one little harbor to another. That's gunk holing. That's gunk holing. We were out huh. gunk holing in the San Juan Islands, and we we ended up at this moment where the a rope that was hanging off of the boat got twisted around the propeller mm. of the boat as we were drifting towards some rocks. Uh-oh. And the only way to get the rope off of the propeller was for us to strip down to our underwear. What? <laughs> didn't even have time to put on swim trunks. Okay. And to dive under the boat with a knife. <laughs> oh, and my God. cut the rope off of the propeller shaft. Mind you, it's like the water is like 45 degrees. This is the uh, Pacific Northwest. Even uh, in summer, it is breathtakingly cold. But you have to do it really fast because the rocks are approaching. Is that the why? The rocks are much closer uh, than we would like them to be. Okay. And so we're diving under, we're alternating, diving under the boat with <gasps> this knife, cutting as much as we can. Meanwhile, the propeller is very far under the boat. Oh, like you no. got to swim way <gasps> under the boat to be where the propeller is. This is an action movie. Honestly, like when I finally got the like last little bit cut free and I swam back out, I have never felt cooler in my life. The only part I messed up was I didn't hold the knife in my teeth oh, yeah. when I dove in, which is like the ultimate 
cool guy move. <laughs> but other than that, it was by far and away the most um, brave thing I have ever <laughs> done in my life. And when we got back on the boat, turned it on and steered away from the rocks and started out on the rest of our journey, we gave the coldest but most excited bro <laughs> hug standing there soaking wet oh. that you've ever seen. Wow. I did yeah. not do anything nearly that cool last weekend. I took no risks. <laughs> well, my first thought after completing it was I got to bring this up on the radio show. So <laughs> believe me, that's not an everyday occurrence for me. Uh, this is the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Um, let's get our first guest on over to the party. Of course, right now going on big trips, it's kind of frowned upon. Um, but maybe we can take a vicarious big trip um, with Timothy Egan. He is the Pulitzer Prize winning writer, writes for the New York Times, among other places. And a few years ago, uh, he was struggling with his relationship with his faith. He, he grew up Catholic. And so he decided to walk like over a thousand miles through Europe, ending up at the Vatican. The idea being that he would talk to the Pope when he got done and kind of like sort of hash out his personal feelings on uh, his faith. Uh, so let's take a listen to this. This is our chat with Tim Egan at the Alberta Rose Theater. Tim, welcome to the show. Great, great to be back with you. Tim, I'm wondering, was this a journey that you wanted to take and then you realized it should actually be a book? Or did you want to write this book and then realize that you were going to have to hike like a thousand miles to make that happen? Like, what's, so, which came so first? The, the book is, it's a walk from Canterbury to Rome, which was the oldest pilgrimage trail in Europe. Most people know about the Camino de Santiago, right. which is the one in Spain. Two million people a year go on that. This one is actually older, but it fell into the mists of time over, and it's only been revived by the EU in the last 40 years. So it's far less crowded, and it's absolutely spectacular. I mean, you leave Canterbury, you go to the cliffs of Dover, you, if you're really spiritual, you can walk across the English Channel. Uh, and, and then you get to Calais, you go through the Flanders fields, you go through the Champagne country, you start to ascend through the Alps, you crest at 8,000 feet on Great St. Bernard Pass, which is just spectacular. And then you're in Sound of Music country in these little alpine hamlets. You end up in Tuscany, the Lazio, and in Vatican Square. It's, it's a thousand mile journey that's just extraordinary. Now, you know, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I shouldn't, you know, my publisher doesn't know this. I was looking for a way to get paid to walk through Europe. So, ah, okay. Yeah, so that was part of my motivation. And mostly, you know, in my books, I'm a historian, I do a lot of time traveling. And I felt um, I was going to write this book from the third person, you know, this, the history of Christianity and have that, that voice of remove. But as I got into it, I said, you know, I, I really have to be, to use this overused word, transparent with the audience. I've got to split a vein and tell people where I am in this thing. Uh, where were you when you set out to go on this journey, like in terms of your relationship with organized religion? So I'm part of what is the largest, fastest growing cohort in religion in the United States, which is a lapsed Catholic. Okay. <laughs> Second biggest cohort is uh, people who call the nuns, which means they're not agnostic or they're not religious, but they don't belong to any particular religion. Now, I define a lapsed Catholic as someone who um, doesn't believe in hell, but is pretty sure he's going there. <laughs> and so, so it's a little hard. <laughs> and um, 
you know, I thought I've just, I was at a certain age in my life where I had not thought about spirituality for a long time. We're spiritual beings, and yet most of us suffer from malnutrition of the soul. And so I thought, you know, I've let my thinking go dormant. I might as well press this thing. I should really press the issue. And then the great Catholic comedian Stephen Colbert, <laughs> uh, I could hear his voice in the back of my head. He said, um, an, an agnostic is just an atheist without balls. <laughs> and so, so, and, and I'm, I'm in fairly good shape. And I just thought, you know, well, I still got this, you know, this energy and I still got this curiosity and this desire to press this thing and to, to look for miracles and look for faith and look at what this thing's all about. And you're walking through these, you know, every place you land, there was some miracle. I mean, Joan of Arc slept here where I'm sleeping. Um, you know, there's bodies all over the place, body parts, they call them relics you know, which are saints who've done saintly things and have lived through it all. So every place is someplace extraordinary, someplace magical. And also when you go on a pilgrimage like this, there's tons of drama. You don't know what to expect on any given day. I mean, a French dog can come after you and French dogs have an attitude. I yeah. mean, they, and you don't even know what they're saying. No, right. I mean... They bark with an accent. Yeah, it's super um, confusing. And so I, we got chased by dogs. I got, I got lost a million times. Um, so many things happened, and it was just wonderful adventure. Um, you talk about the decline of particularly Christianity in Europe. Like some people are saying, maybe Christianity won't even exist, or Catholicism won't even exist in 50 years in parts of Europe. Were you seeing the evidence of that as you're on this journey, that just like the decline of this organized religion? So this is one of my motivations initially, was to find God in Europe before God is gone. Because this was the theological cradle of the, of the most popular religion in the world. 2.3 billion people are Christians, one in three. But it's absolutely dying in Europe. They say in 50 years, Christianity will disappear in, the, in Great Britain. And France, 97% are nominally Catholic, but only 2% go to Mass on a regular basis. So you go to these spectacular places, these extraordinary cathedrals. I was in a scriptorium where monks used to labor all day with a little candle, you know, and their half gloves trying to write a full page of an illuminated manuscript. And you realize how important this was to all of civilization, but it's just a fossil. And it's just empty. The growth in Christianity is in Africa. And in 20 years, there'll be more Catholics in Africa than all of Europe. Wow. But I guess the, the question many people would have was like, is it such a bad thing that Catholicism is going away, considering the damage that it's done right. on multiple levels across continents and to all kinds of people? So you'll see as you go through this journey with me, I, I start pretty downbeat and I go through the history. I mean, it's a struggling spiritual startup. And in 50, you know... Just looking what, for an angel investor? Right, right. I mean, just... I mean, no, it, it, no, A VC and JC? No, exactly. And good line. I mean, put that and, in the second right, edition right, of the book. Right. That's a freebie, Tim. And, and, you know, at the time of Christ, the Messiah racket was a big deal. There were a lot of phony messiahs floating around. So 50 years after the death of Christ, there's still only 2,000 Christians in all of the Roman Empire, which is 50 million people. Now, as I said, it's 2.3 billion. How did this struggling spiritual startup get to be the world's largest religion? Well, it went through this phase where it got co-opted by the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. They made it the state religion, which really was their original sin, because soon they were persecuting anybody and killing all the old gods, anyone who did not belong. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, how can this religion in the name of the so-called Prince of Peace 
have brought so much bloodbath. And, you know, not to say, mention the crusades and heresy and all of that. And I, it's like, my God, I, has Christianity been a force for good in anything? And you think, and when you look at that, but then you see little things along the way. Little things, little examples of people trying to live by the original words of the gospel. And then also you look at mysticism, which is a hard thing to erase. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We, of course, are at our houses these days because, you know, pandemic. But we are playing a conversation that we recorded back in January with the writer Tim Egan. It's about his book, A Pilgrimage to Eternity. And you don't want to go anywhere because coming up, he's going to tell us about the time a corpse winked at him on this journey. And I want to repeat, Tim Egan has a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Somebody who is to be believed. This is what he says happened to him. We're going to find out more about that coming up after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. It's the Live Wire House Party from PRX. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content, uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. ZBiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. 
Welcome back to the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, let's pick things back up with our conversation we had earlier this year with writer Tim Egan. We recorded it at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. We were talking about his book, A Pilgrimage to Eternity. So let's talk, uh, Tim, about the, the kind of miracle that you may have observed yourself on this journey. What was the name of, of this woman who's, I don't want to say claim to fame, that sounds dismissive, but she was known for, for dying, but her body never decomposed. Just to give you a little context, um, 80% of Americans believe in miracles. Now, I'm a skeptic by profession. So I went into this a, a real skeptic. I was not the 80%. I was in the minority that thinks, you know, miracles are more, mostly charlatan acts. You know, as Christopher Hitchens says in his book, it's just, there was just cheap, you know, acts of magician's acts to try to get the rubes into the faith. And then um, I got into Italy, which is the most glorious part of the Via Francigena, the trail I followed. It's the last 500 miles, and every step is infused with some kind of mysticism. Now, most of you, I imagine, have been in Italy, and you know if you go into an average-sized church and go up to the altar, you'll see a body in there. Underneath the altar, usually, it's preserved. Now, those bodies are called incorruptibles, and the Catholic Church recognizes them through a forensic process they've gone through as bodies that did not decompose. So you have these... You know, I've done that with gin. Right. This, I'm going to look like this in a thousand years. Well, and, and you look so good still. You know? Well, thank you. Yeah. So I, I go into this, the second biggest Duomo in the world after only the one in Florence. Oh, excuse me, the third biggest after the one in St. Peter in Florence. It's in the little town of Montefiascone, about 80 miles from Rome. And it's a dark and stormy night. And I'm told I've got to go in and see the incorruptible body of San Lucia Filippini who lies underneath a crypt there. And there's, I didn't even look at the Duomo. I went right down into the crypt, and I, I sort of creep forward. I see her. She's like, you know, 15 feet away, and she's lying on her back. And I get, I'm alone. I'm the only person in there. I take a bunch of pictures. I'm just sort of looking at the skin and trying to figure out what the trick is. And then the eyes open slowly and then all the way and I just about I, mean, I just I was just totally startled and I stood there all alone and looked at it I took a bunch of pictures of it and then the eyes closed and um I, I don't know how to explain it I hadn't had a drink um it was late in the day She's one of the incorruptibles. She was just known for being incredibly good. She started um, girls' schools. Mm. She was an early feminist. And her saintliness was just that she was just known for being an amazing person. Cool. And, and when she died, her body didn't compose. Now, I thought there was some... So I sent a note to the archbishop later, you know, what embalming trick is this to make the <laughs> eyes open? Um, here's what I'll say about this. There's a line from Augustine. I read a lot of Augustine while I was doing this. And I also read Christopher Hitchens' book on atheism called God is Not Great. I basically wanted to let him argue on the Kindle. So yeah. I'd go back and forth. You know, every time I sort of got in a little bit, I'd listen to Christopher Hitchens, you know, that religion is all caca, you know. So there's a great line from Augustine that um, miracles are not contrary to nature. They're only contrary to what we know about nature. And that made a lot of sense to me. And um, there's, I went and looked at this. There's some of the 80 miracles that have been documented at Lourdes by medical authorities. The British magazine Lancet did a complete study of them. They call them medically inexplicable. Now, a lot of them are, you know, showmanship. 
but there's an inexplicable part of it. So I, you know, I'm not going to dismiss that. How do you square that then with the? A lot of us are really trying to argue for a more fact-based world right. in our current right. climate. I mean, part of. I know that part of your, you could say, disillusionment at the beginning of this book had to do with the 2016 election and the way that we seem to have moved into a post-factual world. How do you square what seems like a growing openness on your part to things that can't be explained with the fact that we have a lot of people in this world who are not believing facts enough? Right. Well, there are two different things. One is mysticism itself. And I spend a lot of time um, where Joan of Arc bedded down in the midst of her campaign. She was a teenage mystic. They, they never really understood her because she had a power, an aura. I mean, she was just this illiterate peasant teenage girl who basically kicked the English out of France. And also, and again, a feminist who men did not understand, so they had to kill her. Mm -hmm. um, now, to get to your question, that's mysticism, which I'll put in another realm. The fact-based stuff, here's the great irony of the Catholic Church right now. You have a pope, Pope Francis, who, when he came to the United States Congress, he argued for fact-based climate change understanding. Now, here's a church that used to, yes. And he welcomes Stephen Hawking and the, all these physicists into the Vatican to talk about science. He says science just makes him believe in God even more. So here's a church that used to roast people at the stake for saying things that every third grader knows to be true today. And now they have a pope who's leading the cause for having a fact-based understanding of what's happening to our earth. And yet, uh, I know that you had family members who were abused within the Catholic Church. And part of the launch point of this book is that you were going to go and try to get audience with the pope to more or less see if you could forgive the Catholic Church. I mean, that's a very intense journey to be on. Yeah, I mean... Part of it, Pope Francis was the Wizard of Oz, and my journey was to be whether I could see the Wizard of Oz and whether I could forgive the Wizard of Oz because the clerical abuse scandal, I, I'm one of seven kids, and one of my siblings was affected by this abuse scandal, which is the, it's, I think it's the biggest scandal facing the church since the Reformation of 500 years ago, which mm -hmm. broke the church up. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther, they had this you know, indulgence thing where you'd basically pay to get into heaven. Mm -hmm. And th now they're facing this existential crisis. And so part of my journey was, when I get to Oz, can I forgive the Pope? Can I have an audience with the Pope? So part of my thing is to try to get to see him and see if I can, if I can forgive him. For people who might be hearing this, either here at the Alberta Rose or on the radio, who are just sort of like, why should I care about organized religion? Or, or maybe the question is, what is something like this provide in your life, Tim Egan? Like, what's the value of this? Yeah, I, I would say two things. One is on an intellectual basis, one is a spiritual thing. The intellectual thing is, it, it's impossible to understand the world today if you don't understand religion. And I learned so much that I had forgotten or didn't know at all, and it opened my eyes to a lot of things, both good and bad. But it's important if you're, if you're a literate, sentient, thinking human being to understand religion. The other thing is I would say, you know, it, it just, to me it felt really good just to activate my long dormant spiritual side. You know, we have other dimensions and I let those things go dormant. And you know, from like an outsider perspective, so much of our tourism, our travel, our, ch our physical challenges are, are wound up in 
things that people have built because of religion, right? How many times are you in a town and they're like, you got to go see the church. And then you go and you try really hard to quickly learn the history of who's buried there. And the place where it's built has seen these amazing environmental changes over the course, or it's an amazing walk from one place to another place. And your book does this wonderful stitching of history and appreciation of beautiful things to enjoy while going on this spiritual journey. You learn so much and it's this this amazing through line of these experiences that we all have when we just kind of want to go outside and see something beautiful, you know? Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that, but I, pilgrimage is natural to us. And there's a reason why something like 200 million people a year worldwide go on a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. The physical journey is, becomes the interior journey. And, you know, when you go on the Via Francigena, it just helps that everything is a prompt to something else. So even when you start in Canterbury, here's where um, Thomas Beckett got his skull cracked by two nights. It's, it's an 850-year-old crime scene and like the third most visited place in all of England. Um, Canterbury's tale came from going, making a journey to the place where Beckett got a skull crack. And, and that changed literature, it right? It, made, it gave us the birth of literature. Tourism absolutely. made, like no. religious tourism made books be the way books are That's now. That's absolutely right. And we needed an English major, a teacher. Uh, right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Elena Passarello, everyone. And by the way, Timothy Egan, his book is A Pilgrimage to Eternity from Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith. Uh, Tim, here on Livewire, we like to try to get to know our guests in a, in a very real way. I, I think having read the book, I've learned a lot about you that I didn't know. But for the radio listeners, we want to still try to really get to the core of, of Tim Egan. And to that end, here on stage, we have this actual physical jar. This has the five essential questions of our time in it. We call this the jar of truth. Oh, my God. Is this a absolute truth? Well, uh, you'd be surprised. Here's, here's how this works. We're going to have you draw a question out of the jar of truth. Elena Passarella will read it. We'd like your honest answer. Now, usually the questions are like, how many unread emails is too many unread emails? <laughs> or something really important like that. This week, though, because of the topic of your book, these are all questions about faith and belief and the afterlife. If, if, there's, if this has ever really been the jar of truth, it's this week. Okay. okay. I feel like sanctified. Yeah. Okay. So the stakes are pretty high here, Tim. Don't mess this up. No, I know. All right. So go ahead and please uh, grab a question out of the jar of truth. Hand it okay. to Elena Passarello. Okay. Timothy Egan, which is a bigger act of faith in friendship? Letting your friend watch your pet or letting your friend drive your car? <laughs> That's really easy. You can do better than this. It's watch the pet. Uh, That's a bigger act of faith. Right, right. Yeah, right. Wait, you just, it seems like you might disagree, Mr. Burbank. Sorry, Luke, this is My my dog was not (laughs) $27,000. I'm not still making payments on my dog. (laughs) Yeah, but insurance covers your car, but doesn't cover your dog. Actually, I have dog insurance. (laughs) True story, and the reason is. I don't want to have to decide how much my dog's life is worth to me in the moment. So I pay some exorbitant fee every month. So if something, heaven forbid, happened, I would not have to put a value on her life because it would probably be shockingly low. Right. No. I'd probably be like $1,800. This is actually getting us to a kind of an absolute truth, I think. Exactly. All right. Please uh, select a question from the Jar of Truth, Tim Egan. Second truthy question. Is it okay 
to not say bless you the third consecutive time that someone sneezes? So that's a really tough one because I noticed, you know, in this secular world, you know, I don't say bless you. And if you say bless you, people are going to go like, huh, what's your religion? You know, really? I, I mean, I've always been in my sort of fair and balanced way. I thought, you know, I'll just, I'll just try not to have people. What do you mean by that? Do you so, say gesundheit? No, I just say, could you cover your mouth? Ah, yeah. <laughs> Redirect their anger at something else. So, so, but that was, that was in my younger and more vulnerable years, you know, when I was a smart ass. And now I've come around. People would give you weird looks if you didn't say bless you. So now I just do it as an act of politeness, of course. But by the third bless you, it's really, would you cover your mouth? Mm. Yeah. This is one of the things, actually, I'm sorry to bring this up, but I, I never understood the bless you thing. So why are you saying bless you when you sneeze? I think because you're getting close to death. Right? Yeah. It's because of the plague, right? If you're sneezing, then, then, then you need the blessing of the Lord to keep you from... Yeah, it's like the Zycam of, like, 13th century, like, the emergency yes. of... And we're open to any of those products sponsoring the show, by the way. Now that they're getting free shout-outs. Timothy Egan, you have tamed the jar of truth. Tim Egan's new book is A Pilgrimage to Eternity from Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith. Tim, thanks for being on Livewire. That's Tim Egan, recorded back in January of this year at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, talking about his book, A Pilgrimage to Eternity. Boy, Elena, those um, jar of truth questions about sneezing, covering <laughs> yeah. your mouth, that really, really felt real different at the beginning of this year. I was on a hike yesterday, and I was crossing a little bridge over a creek, and I sneezed. There was a guy on the other side of the bridge, and he said, well, now I can't go on that bridge since you sneezed on it. He was kidding, but... <laughs> I would be that guy except not joking. I would just have to climb back up the mountain or whatever. So this is the Livewire House Party. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we like to ask the audience a question every week on the show and get their responses. Anything we can do to feel connected. In these weird, isolated times. This week we asked, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Uh, what's the audience telling you, Elena, is the biggest risk they've ever taken? Listen to this one from Laura. Biggest risk Laura's ever taken? Through an election party. <sighs> I would say, and again, I don't want to get overly political, but <clears throat> this year... I mean, forget the pandemic, just the kind of anxiety level for a lot of people. Yeah. I think a lot of people threw that party in 2016 kind yeah. of thinking it was a slam dunk. I um, Let me put it this way. Even if it were allowed, I don't think I could get anyone to come over to an election yeah. party at my house for 2020. I get nervous when people who are fans of sports teams throw Super Bowl parties where their team is represented. Mm-hmm. Because I know that, like, if the outcome isn't great, I'm going to see my friend be sad. So <laughs> I will never go to an election party. I don't think that I'm a very a superstitious person, but I deal with a lot of intrusive thoughts about chaos theory as it relates to sports. And I, I can make the argument that if I watch a game, it impacts it in that mm. kind of a butterfly flaps its wings sort oh, sure. of idea. Um, okay, so here's the superstition me and my friends have. Okay. Our buddy, Camaro Kev, if the Seattle Seahawks are losing, Camaro Kev has to go to a specific bar in Seattle called the Pinehurst Pub and drink a specific terrible drink called the Hawk Bomb. Mm. And if the Seahawks start losing, our text chain amongst our friends starts just 
blowing up with people saying, Camaro Kev, you know what you have to do. <gasps> and he has to physically go to this place and do it. And we believe that will change the outcome. To, and what's your rate of success? Pretty high. Ah! It's like 80%. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are some other risky things that the listeners are doing? Oh, this one's super memorable. It's from Hannah C. in Washington. Hannah says, okay. I kissed my best friend. <gasps> He's Yikes. my husband now, and oh. we just had our second baby. <laughs> I'm really goodness. glad we didn't have to go to commercial like before you could <laughs> before you could finish that statement because that goes from being like a oh, nail biter to like oh what a happy ending. Yes, yeah, it could have gone the other direction. The, there could have been a totally different sentence that followed. Yeah. My former best friend. Uh, <laughs> what are some other uh, memorable risks that the listeners have taken? Here is one from Claire. The biggest risk Claire has ever taken: student dentist. <laughs> my mom still does that wow yeah my mom my mom and my dad i believe go to the 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 dental school at the university of washington and you know i mean it, it, it it's something that is economically feasible for them but it's you know she's there for three days to get a filling yeah I'm right like, it's they, i'm glad they work slow and really i yeah. mean that's a service to all of us. So. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. That's not something you want rushed, Mm-mm. particularly if you're working with someone who's still learning the ropes on dentistry. Yeah, take your time. Uh, <laughs> what else are the listeners saying? Here's one from Marcy. Got diagnosed with celiac and went to Italy anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is bravery because that is a place where you're going to find wheat mm-hmm. as an extremely important ingredient in a lot of the things you're eating. I had heard somewhere that a, a surprisingly high number of admissions to the emergency room are from people who have eaten something they know they're allergic to, but they just wanted to have it. Right. And, I am. I very much identify with that. I feel lucky. I don't have a lot of food allergies, but I know that it wouldn't stop me. No, no. If there was ever like an allergy to chips and salsa, I would just buy myself an EpiPen and just go <laughs> go crazy. <laughs> what are some other uh, memorable risks that the listeners have taken? Oh, here's a really risky one from Sandy. Speed reading a book less than 24 hours before my book club meeting, and you're like, <laughs> "What? Come on! <laughs> like you, you read the book, Sandy." <laughs> I know, right? I remember you saying that you were you were great at organizing book clubs, but not particularly interested always in reading the books. One time I was in a book club for a graphic novel. It was for Watchmen. Mm. And I remember like trying to speed read a graphic novel because even that I hadn't finished in time for the book club. <laughs> You're, you're going to be in a book club where it's like Pat the Bunny and you're going to be like yes. in the driveway, just like thumbing through those cardboard pages yes. as fast as you can. <laughs> what happened? Did Spot run or not? I got to get to the end of this thing. Does he like green eggs and ham? <laughs> um, this is the Livewire House Party. Okay, we're talking about taking risks on the show this week. Um, here is a risk that not everybody would take. You're a successful, highly compensated member of corporate America and you decide to walk away from that to work in the cannabis industry, specifically helping direct profits from cannabis businesses back into black and brown communities, because of course, those communities have been really decimated by the war on drugs historically, trying to repair some of that. Uh, That is exactly what our next guest, Jeanette Ward Horton did. And we talked to her at the Alberta Rose Theater this year as part of our Fascinating Friends segment. So take a listen to this. Hi, Jeanette. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. 
So uh, if I uh, read your biographical information right, uh, you worked in corporate America for a while. You did acquisitions for Coca-Cola. That may have been fascinating, but that is not why we have you here on this episode of the show. Uh, we wanted to talk to you because these days you're the co-founder of a project called New Leaf. What does New Leaf do? So New Leaf is a nonprofit, and we help uh, build intergenerational wealth for people of color through the profits of the legal cannabis industry. <laughs> and we do that by supporting businesses to help uh, businesses owned by people of color and cannabis to help them launch, to help them scale. And we also do that um, by helping professionals of color uh, get high earning uh, positions within cannabis companies that, you know, are growing, one of the fastest growing industries in, in the U.S., uh, growing globally. Um, yeah, so there's an opportunity, a great opportunity for both entrepreneurs and uh, people working in leadership positions in these companies to build intergenerational wealth, and we want to see that happen for black and brown people. How, how did you get interested in this kind of work coming from, you know, corporate America? Yeah, so I came to the cannabis industry because I thought it was a really incredible opportunity. Um, and Would you say it was a leaf of faith? It, it, oh, wow. <laughs> Elena, you're hosting the rest of the show. <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness, though, I mean, that's quite a jump. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the cannabis industry is, is still developing. There's still a lot of stigma around it. Yep. You're a woman of color. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is quite a, that was quite a transition, I would imagine. Yeah, all of that's true. That's right. Yeah. I did it because I saw an opportunity and uh, saw a door open and ran through it. But then I got there and I said, oh, wait, this, this matters. I wanted to say it won't let me go because it won't. Like, this is super important. Mm -hmm. And I think that worked out uh, ultimately for me. But um, I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me when I got there. And it seemed ironic um, that an industry, through the arrests of people of color, um, helped create prisons, create um, other things around the incarceration of black and brown people. And then this drug becomes legal and is now creating um, wealth for people then who, who don't look like us. Right. Um, the idea being that people of color have been disproportionately prosecuted with longer sentences and more enforcement around, right. for instance, cannabis and marijuana, and then the thing goes legit and it's a bunch of white people getting right. rich off it. Right. So cannabis took wealth from communities of color, and now the industry really needs to, to invest that back because these tax dollars are benefiting our communities, your communities, looking at the audience. Yeah. Looking at any state that's legalized cannabis, that money needs to come back to the communities that were harmed through the war on drugs. And in some places, it's legislated, right? Like Chicago, but that's not happening in Portland? or So it's happening in Portland. So Illinois, they have um, a pretty progressive social equity bill that helps reinvest tax dollars into building that intergenerational wealth I was talking about, building entrepreneurs um, and other investments into communities of color uh, broadly. Um, so it's a, it's a good bill. They have that. In the state of Oregon, we don't have anything, but in the city of Portland, we do. And you worked on that, right? That's right. How does that work? It's like a percentage of the money that's generated by, by rule has to be reinvested in communities of color? So um, everything you said is true except for percentage. There is a pool of money available for investments into various things, and one of those things um, is communities of color. 
uh, investments into uh, what New Leaf does, so investments into businesses uh, owned by people of color, investment into professional development uh, for people of color and cannabis, but then also uh, investments into schools, investments into job development and workforce development programs, investments into programs that help people transition from prison to um, gainful employment. It's a really good way to say, let's rebuild the communities that were harmed in the city of Portland. The problem is we haven't allocated a percentage. So you said a percentage. Um, we've said that the money will go to reinvesting in these communities, but not how much. So we're investing a really little amount. Um, so I'm happy for our start, but I want to make sure we continue working on, on it and make sure that we're doing the right thing. You in your own life were basically hassled by the police because of cannabis. Yes. So I was, I was arrested and it really is traumatic. It is. The experience is. But forget that. Like that's, that's just the start of it. Um, I was arrested. I got strip searched to spend a night in jail, yada, yada, um, yada, yada. <laughs> but it's a yada, I suppose, because I know a lot of people who have yada in my community. I know a lot sure. of people who, been through for it. whom this story is not special. But it's the, um, the after effects of that. So for me, I've had my record expunged and I haven't had to experience a lot of after effects. I was able to end up in corporate America in, um, in a really great job. But that's not the story for most people and most families. And that's the important part of this. And, um, you know, for my own family, that's my arrest, but that's not the, telling the story of the arrest of my father and then how that impacts our family. And that's, that's the piece. That's where we have to say this was more than just a yada yada jail. This was intergenerational impact to your ability to sustain your family. And then you see this play out in communities and the opportunity that people have um, coming from certain communities or living in certain communities. So I keep circling back to the intergenerational wealth and that impact and how we owe it, we owe it through this cannabis tax to, to pay that back. And that's what New Leaf does. That's what we advocate for. And that's what you see in states like Illinois. This is happening um, across other, other states because th there's a realization that we can do this, we can right this wrong, and we have this opportunity. What uh, can people do, uh, aside from enjoying the many varieties of cannabis now available in, in many states, uh, aside from that, what can people do to help try to push this forward? You know, you all vote, right? So you can um, really advocate for this and uh, show support for uh, those folks um, in our government who should be held accountable to this. Our city commissioners being an example. Um, it really is a great thing that we have. You know, I started kind of with the negative. We aren't giving enough money to the cause, and we're not. But it's a great thing that we've got to start. And we do have that start in the city of Portland. And so the city did that. You did that. The voters did that. And I, I did help write the language. You asked me about that. So you vote. This is what you can do. You can hold your elected officials accountable. Well, we wish you luck with this. I feel like it is a product that sells itself. So if we can make sure the money is going to the right places, it seems like it should be a good virtuous cycle. Uh, Jeanette Ward Horton from New Leaf. Thanks for being our new fascinating friend. That was Jeanette Ward Horton, one of our fascinating friends here on Livewire. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we have to take a very quick break, but uh, don't go anywhere because when we come back, you're going to hear some music from Pure Bathing Culture. Stay with us. It's the Livewire House Party. Mm -hmm. 
Hey, special thanks this episode to Laura Cotties of Portland, Oregon, and Burton Cooley of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Laura and Burton are part of the LiveWire member community. They are generously supporting our show with a donation each month, and we are so thankful for that support. It is genuinely what allows us to keep this show going. So a hearty, hearty thank you and applause to Laura and Burton. LiveWire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarella, who this week is, uh, I can see you on Zoom. You're wearing a very stylish T-shirt that just says Polaroid on it? Yeah, I got it at the grocery store. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, I do all my shopping at the grocery store now. (laughs) Really? I got a Wonder Woman T-shirt, too. (laughs) (laughs) It looks good. I like it. Thanks. Um, Our musical guests this hour have toured with Death Cab for Cutie and The Shins, to name just a couple of bands. Uh, Their latest album is Night Pass. Uh, They are called Pure Bathing Culture, and we got to hear from them January of this year at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Take a listen to this. Hi there. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Um, Sarah, I was listening to uh, a podcast that you were on uh, a little while ago, and you were talking about how you used to have like tremendous stage fright to the point where you didn't even want to go on stage and actually sing. It's true. I actually was feeling it a little bit tonight, weirdly, but now that I see you all, I feel better. It's always like, when, when you're like, the anticipation of it is crazy. It's I wasn't like, trying to bring it back for you. I was, I was hoping to hear a triumphant story of a woman overcoming the odds. I'm like, no, I'm still shaking. You're like, it. yeah, you just re-triggered me. Thanks, dude. Thanks. What did you, was it just repetition though? Just performing a ton? Yeah, I really think it was. And also just... Definitely repetition. It was really hard for me initially, like, in college to just even have the courage to get up and ask people to play with me and stuff. And Dan was actually one of the first people that I had the courage to ask to play with me. Um, But, yeah, repetition is a big part of it. And then also just, yeah, just feeling good in the music. And I feel like pure bathing culture has really been the vehicle um, for me to find my confidence in, in being a front person. What are some of the bands that, that you both admire, look up to? What were you guys listening to when you were younger? When we were younger, well, we went to college for jazz. We studied jazz, so we were listening to a lot of jazz back then. But I think as we got more into writing for Pure Bathing Culture, like Cocteau Twins was big oh, for yeah. us, and Daruti Column, uh, and then also Fleetwood Mac, I think, was really big for us when we were first starting to write. I mean, I feel like those things are still a big part of our world as as we continue to listen and come back to all those records. But um, I, I also feel like maybe now we're even more returning a little bit to our roots of that original jazz feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I really disagree with everything <laughs> really? Sarah just said. <laughs> well, Livewire drives another wedge between a creative team. 
We actually broke up Martin and Lewis back in 1958. Little known fact. Uh, what, what song are we going to hear? It's called All Night. All right. Well, thanks for being here, you guys. This is Pure Bathing Culture on Livewire. Culture, right here on Livewire. Their latest album, Night Pass, is available now. That was Pure Bathing Culture, <laughs> recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater earlier this year. Elena, that brings us to the end of the show. I want to give both of us uh, some kind of a gold star for getting through the show, because I know where you are in Corvallis and where I am, it is... There is so much smoke from these wildfires. I yeah, mean, it is smoky times. It does not usually take courage to record a radio show from home, <laughs> but I will say we've both been pushing through today, so good job. Also, great job to all of our guests, and a big thanks to them as well. Timothy Egan, Jeanette Ward-Horton, and Pure Bathing Culture. 
Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Savchenko. Amy McCormick is our development director. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Sam Tucker, Ethan Fox Tucker, and A. Walker Spring, who also composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixed this episode along with Corey Schreppel. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank member Jane Johnson of Everett, Washington for supporting the show. For more information about Livewire or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.